Please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. It's easy to find. You can just start at the beginning and begin to turn just a bit to the right. Exodus is the, the book of Israel's great deliverance from slavery under Pharaoh and Egypt. And when we were last together, we have seen uh, Israel be delivered from slavery and bondage by God. And then as they were uh, headed out of Egypt, we saw a circumstance where the Lord brought them to where their backs were up against the Red Sea. And then, of course, Pharaoh and the Egyptians decided that they had made a mistake letting Israel go. And they raised their army to go and destroy the Israelites. And the Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army with no place to go but to the Lord. And the Lord delivered them in a spectacular fashion, parting the Red Sea so that Israel crossed on dry land. And then Pharaoh and his army were consumed. And so now we turn to Exodus chapter 15, which occurs right after this incident of the Red Sea, in which the Israelites break out into triumphant song for what God has done for them. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Exodus chapter 15 verses 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. 
all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall on them all. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still like a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on the ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your mighty deeds in history. We thank you, Lord, that we can read of your deliverance of your people from Egypt, of your deliverance of them through the Red Sea. And we, O Lord, can take great comfort in it to know that you continue to deliver your people even this day. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would set our eyes toward heaven, that we would trust in you, this we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This is a chapter about a song. And this should be familiar to you. That is, I mean, the idea or the concept of singing. Songs have a great use in our lives. As a matter of fact, we've even experienced that today because singing is a central part of our worship. Have you ever stopped and wondered why we sing in worship? I mean, it is easy to understand why we have the Bible read to us in worship. Why we have the Bible explained to us in worship. It's even easy to understand why we pray to the Lord in worship. But why do we sing in worship? Perhaps... I reveal my lack of competence in this area, but it seems to me that singing is the most difficult thing that we do in worship. If you're anything like me and you can't read a note, you just try to, to follow along and stay on track and somewhat on tune. Why is it that this is a part of our worship? I think it's because it's part of the way that God has made us. Songs take hold on our heart. They are familiar to us in many ways, even more than words are. If I were to ask you right now, could you please alphabetize this list for me? I've already caught you. Going on in your head is the alphabet song. That's how we do things. As a matter of fact, when someone asks me to put something in alphabetical order in the middle of the alphabet, it takes me a few seconds because I've got to sing the song all the way up to L-M-N-O-P. Songs stick with us. Songs are also ways that we mark special occasions. You can think of a birthday song or Christmas carols. They remind us that an occasion is special. And so here we have 
the Song of Moses. Sometimes called the Song by the Sea. It is a song of Israel marking the deliverance that God has brought to them. And this evening, I'd like us to take a look at this song, which really, in a sense, is in three parts. We might say three stanzas of this song. First, there is a song of thanksgiving in verses 1 through 10. Then, there is a song of praise in verses 11 through 13. And then finally, there is a song of assurance in verses 14 through 18. Thanksgiving, praise, and assurance. Let's begin then by looking at the song of Moses and its song of thanksgiving. And this is indeed thanksgiving for deliverance that God has brought to Israel. It is deliverance from the past. It is a song of thanksgiving both for what God has done and who he is. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 describes what God has done for Israel. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is a song of praise to God and comfort for God's people because of what God has already done for his people. This is a, a biblical pattern. There is a recounting of what God has done. And then we are comforted in our present state because we know that the same God who has delivered is the God we serve now. And of course, the great example of this in the Bible is this example we are looking at. It is the Exodus. Over and over again in the Psalms and even in the prophets, we see the Bible telling us of God's great and mighty deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And then from there, the psalmist or the prophet moves to describing how God will deliver his people now in times of trouble. Because God doesn't change. And you see, that's also what we have thanksgiving for. It's not just what God has done, but it's who God is. It's not just that circumstances turned out well. It's that the God who controls circumstances is good. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The song immediately moves to describing who God is, why God is wonderful. He is my strength. He is my song. He is my salvation. Now, we see this same pattern of recounting the deliverance of God, of his people, in the New Testament. But it's interesting that the great deed of deliverance in the New Testament is not the exodus, but the resurrection. We have the resurrection brought to us over and over again by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Peter, by the Apostle John, by the Gospel writers, as the event that God has worked to deliver his people. And we are told that we can have great confidence, confidence in battling sin, confidence in going before the Lord, confidence in facing the world, because Jesus has already won the victory in his resurrection. This is a deliverance that God has accomplished. Now, the Israelites sing this song here of deliverance, and it's not just a 
bear deliverance. It seems that with every action movie, the hero delivers at the very last second in the very minimal way possible, escaping by his fingernails or the skin of his teeth, we might say. There's one second left on the bomb. There's one thing left to do. But that's not so with God. When God delivers, he completely delivers. Do you see how the song describes this? Not only have the means of the enemy been destroyed, the horse, but the enemy himself has been destroyed, the rider. We don't have to worry about the enemy gathering up new resources and coming back after the people of God. God has defeated not only the latest plot, he has defeated our enemies. Nothing remains to threaten God's people. Now, this is exactly true for you and for me. No, I don't mean that we were at the Red Sea and that we saw the horses and the chariots consumed by water. But Paul does tell us in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, who is it that shall bring a charge to God's elect? And the answer is no one. Because in Jesus Christ, God has defeated all our enemies. And so there is no one to bring a charge against the believer. It is a deliverance that is complete. There is a sense of thanksgiving given in this song for vindication. Vindication of God. It's God's name who is vindicated. Not our own. This song is about God, not about us. It's very interesting because one of the things that you can see in terms of Christian hymnody and Christian songs is a modern tendency to increase the use of the word I or me in the song. This song is all about God. And everywhere that I is mentioned, it's only about that I have received from God. And God has done this for me. God is clearly the subject of this song. In verse 6 we read, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God's power has been vindicated. He is not short. His right hand is mighty and powerful. He defeats the enemy completely. There is nothing left for the enemy to do. God's Nature is vindicated as well. Who he is. Look at verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. So it's not just that God wins because he's powerful, but it's because he's majestic. He's who he is. There should be no doubt about his victory. And God's authority is also vindicated. In verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. You see, God has authority over all creation. He is the one who has created all things. This is the story of the Bible. God is not a local God. He's not a God that some people serve. He is the God of all the universe. We see this in what Paul picks up in Romans chapter 1, describing how that God is the one who is the creator of all things, and how mankind, the enemy of God, seeks to prop up creation as a God. This is foolishness. 
the Israelites would say. They would sing that the Lord is the one who is over all things. His name is to be vindicated. His power is to be praised. There is a thanksgiving also in verses 9 and 10 for justice. We see in verse 9 the voice of the enemy. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. You could just imagine the discussion of the Egyptian officers and army as they stood watching the Israelites backed up against the sea, completely outnumbered, completely outarmed. And they were already assuming what they would do with the spoils of war. The battle hadn't even been fought. And they were planning out the victory part. But God will not be mocked. He is the powerful one. God will not be ignored. You see, the Egyptians acted as if God was completely out of the equation. And here we see the foolishness of unbelief. Did the Egyptians forget the plagues? Did they forget the death of the firstborn? Did they forget the mighty power of God in delivering Israel? Did they think God was absent now at the Red Sea? That he would simply let them have their way? Of course not. You can't mock God and you can't ignore God. And so the Israelites give thanksgiving for his justice. We see in verse 10, the response of God to the enemy army is to blow with his wind and the sea Covered them. What a way to end the refrain. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Have you ever watched lead in water? It goes right to the bottom. Now, we might not expect that people generally tend to float. Now, I know that in most places in the world, you have to try to work to float a bit. It's not like Ironically, in the Sea of Reeds here in Palestine, where there's so much of a salt content that you could simply float on the top. But generally speaking, people float. Not so here, the enemy of God. They sank like lead. They had no chance against God. There was no way they were going to escape. There was no way that they could doggy paddle their way out of this sea of destruction. Because they were up against... God. I want to remind you of one last thing in this refrain or stanza of thanksgiving. It's an interesting point. Do you see what precedes this psalm? And do you see what immediately follows this psalm? Their complaints. Their complaints about how God has not delivered. How God hasn't done his job. How God has left Israel out to perish. Even intentionally. How often is that true of you and me? That when things are going well. When we can obviously see that God has delivered. We are full of his praise. But when times are hard. When circumstances seem against us. Then we forget this delivering God. We think perhaps he's against us. He's punishing us. We can learn a lesson here from the Israelites. If I might put it this way, you would do far better to live your life in the first half of Exodus 15 rather than the second half. 
to live a life of thanksgiving to God. The second thing that we see is that this is not only a song of thanksgiving, it is a song of praise. And we see this in verses 11 through 13. And one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Exodus 15, verse 11. I would encourage you, if you're looking for a verse to memorize, this is one of them. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so the Israelites now sing the praise of God. They say that the Lord is incomparable. There is no other God who can compare to the Lord. Only the Lord is called the Lord. Now remember what the name the Lord means. It means I am. It means that God is pre-existent and self-sufficient. So they are praising God for who he is. That he is like none other. And they begin by praising his attributes, by praising his holiness. Who is like you, O Lord? Majestic in holiness. Now, I think when we begin to think about the attributes of God, we often don't begin with His holiness. We might begin with His love, or with His mercy, or with His goodness, or even with His justice. But I think here the Israelites have it right. The old Puritan Stephen Charnock put it this way, that holiness is the crowning attribute of God. It beautifies all of his other attributes. God is most essentially holy. That is, he is pure. That is, he is other than we are. He is set apart. There is an otherness about God. That is, most fundamentally, who he is. And so, the people... Praise him for that. And do you notice that they don't praise God in the abstract? They praise him for being active in their lives. Who is like you, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? I think, again, sometimes we want to praise God for who he is for being out there somewhere. God is much easier for us to think about and to approach when he's not involved in our daily lives. When we don't have to think about the decisions we are making, that they need to be honoring to God. I think if there were a way in which we could put pause on the Lord, or that we could stop someone from watching us the way we turn off our phone and the tracking goes off, that we would do so. I fear how often we would do so. So that we would not be seen by God. But you see the Israelites here. They praise God for being active in the world. For being active in their lives. Because God is their God. Their deliverer. In verse 12 we read. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. And so here they praise God for being powerful. The hand of God is described as the power of God. Of course, God doesn't have a body, and so it's not a literal hand that reaches out and squeezes Egyptians. The idea here is that the hand of God describes his mighty power. 
So, for example, in the New Testament, in every reference to the right hand of God, except one that I can find, it refers to our Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Have you wondered why Jesus is described in his ascension as sitting at the right hand of God? Why is he sitting? Why isn't he doing something? And Why the right hand? Well, I think it's clear. It's because Jesus has the power of God. Jesus is almighty. He is divine. He carries the power of God in whom he is. So that should encourage us. Because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust him by faith, it's not just an escape hatch from the miseries of life. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. No. It is serving the powerful God of the universe. There is none like Jesus. No one has the power that Jesus has. None can stand in his way. God is powerful. And the Lord is also praised because he is merciful. Look with me at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, listen to what is being described here. The people of God are already redeemed. But God doesn't leave them to themselves. He leads them. He shepherds them, we might say. He is sufficient to lead his people. He leads them in his strength. And yet he is kind and gentle in his leading. God doesn't force Israel in a certain path, he leads them gently and kindly. I mean, think about just your own life. Have you ever led a child from one point to another point? Have you ever had occasion where perhaps there's an emergency or a challenge or a difficulty and you don't have the opportunity or time to lead them gently, but you grab them by the arm and you drag them wherever they need to be? That's not how God leads us. He leads us gently like a shepherd does his sheep. He takes us to his home. The song says, to his abode, his dwelling place. That's where God leads us. He doesn't just deliver his people. He leads them to his home. And this idea of home is the same concept that we find in the 23rd Psalm. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. We can praise God because he delivers us and he leads us and he leads us to a home where we are cared for. Isn't that the whole idea of being a Christian? Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. Jesus is preparing a place for you now. This is a song of praise. Well, it's not only a song of thanksgiving and a song of praise. It is also finally a song of assurance. We see this in verses 14 through 18. There is assurance of the defeat of Israel's enemies. Verse 14 says, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Now there's something very interesting about this part of the song. It describes the next phase of Israel's history. Except it hasn't happened yet. But do you see what the song says? That the peoples who are out there in the world, they have heard of what God has done. They are dismayed. They are dismayed because of who God is and what he has done. And notice the scope of all of this. The Canaanites who are in the land. The Edomites and the Moabites who will battle Israel before they can even get to the land. And then, of course, the Philistines who will battle Israel in the days of Saul and David. And what this song says is they are all afraid. They are quaking in their boots. Notice the depth of the fear. They tremble. They've been seized by pangs. They are afraid of God. Now that should be great comfort to God's people. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? So let's apply that to our day. The enemies of the church are afraid. Now you say, but pastor, they don't even acknowledge that Jesus is real. They don't even acknowledge that the Bible is true. Do you think the Philistines did? Do you think that the Edomites did? Because if they did, they would have never dared to even battle the Israelites. And yet deep down in their heart, in the recesses of their mind, they are deathly afraid. Because God has set the knowledge of himself in all people. He set it in the heavens as we looked at this morning in Psalm 19. Everyone knows in their heart of hearts that there is a God and that he is mighty and he is sovereign. They may act like he doesn't matter or that he's not powerful, but that doesn't change reality. They are fearful because of what God has done. And so we also see here that the assurance of God's people is grounded not in themselves, but in God. Look at verse 16. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So the assurance of God's people to pass by without harm is not based on their might or their wisdom. But it's based on the power of God and the fear that he strikes in their enemies. Your assurance does not come from how much you have it together. It comes from knowing that God himself is for you. And this assurance is an assurance of blessing. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your own abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This is a blessing prepared for God's people beforehand. And it is a permanent blessing. It's the kind of blessing that never goes away. In years past, have you prepared for a vacation that you really looked forward to? 
I don't know what that means for you. It could mean hiking in the mountains or going on a cruise or going to the beach or uh, relaxing by a pool. But it's a wonderful blessing that you look forward to and you enjoy when you're there. But there comes that point. Sometimes it's when you're about to leave. Sometimes it's even in anticipation of leaving where you say to yourself, the vacation's over. I've got to go home. I've got to go back to work. Back to school. Back to cleaning the house. Back to normal life. You see, the blessing that God has prepared is normal life. It's not a vacation. It's not something that ever ends. It's not a respite from the challenges of the world. It is deliverance from the world. It is being with God forever and ever. Being blessed by Him in His abode. And then finally we see a song of assurance about the Lord's reign. We see this in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That is not a very long time. That is for all eternity. It is with no end. God reigns forever. God will conquer all His and all our enemies. He will bless His people and gather them to Himself. And we are assured of this because of the nature of who God is. In conclusion, there should be a song in your life for others to see. A song of thanksgiving. A song of praising God for who He is. And a song that you are assured of who you are in Jesus. Do you sing that song with your life and with your words before others? Because if you do, others will hear that song. They will be affected by that song. Have you ever had someone do that to you? Stand by you and hum a tune or sing a song that then you can't get out of your head Hours and hours. That's what the Christian's life should be for the world. We should have a song that they cannot shut out. We should tell them of a glorious God who is worthy of all their praise. It is our duty as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to sing of the glories of Jesus. Let's pray.